From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Do you know what vitamin B3 does in your body? Well, if you don't, don't feel too bad. Scientists are still asking some really big questions about that molecule. Today, we're going to answer some of those questions. And then we're going to tell you about a study that revealed nearly 50 new bee species in Utah. The molecular geneticist and the entomological ecologist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. This is a special day for our show, our six-month anniversary. For 26 episodes now, we've been bringing scientists from vastly different fields together to tell you and to tell one another about their research. In that time, we've learned quite a bit about how to make this show work. But one thing we've never done, and I don't think we ever will, is engineer a meetup based on what our guests study thinking that we somehow know what is going to make a scientific match. Instead, we've spent the past six months trusting serendipity. The result is that we never really know what our guests will talk about at the end of each week's program. And I'm often amazed at the connections that are made here. We'll be seeking to make a connection like that today. Joining us in studio is Marella Meyer-Fika, who spent her formative years in Western Germany before heading to the American Southwest for her postdoc work in Arizona, and then to the Northeast, where she spent several years as a senior researcher. She's now a resident of the Mountain West since 2013. She's been a research professor at Utah State University, and her most recent study in the journal Cell Reports describes the creation of a mouse that metabolizes niacin like humans do. Morella, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you so much for having me. Also joining us today is Joseph Wilson, who grew up in Utah and has been biologically inclined since he was very young. When he was two years old, he announced to his parents that he wanted to be a lion. That didn't work out, but he's already proving himself to be a lion in his field. His most recent paper in Pier J describes a census of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument home to 660 species of bees. Hey there, Joseph. Hey. First up today, the molecular geneticist. If you've listened to this show before, you know that we're big fans of the incomparable Randy Newman. And that, of course, is his theme song from Toy Story about a room full of toys and a little boy named Andy. Andy is also the name of a group of transgenic mice developed by our first guest and her team. The name is an acronym for Acquired Niacin Dependency. And when it comes to helping humans understand the role of niacin in our bodies, these transgenic model organisms could be a good friend indeed. Niacin, which is also known as vitamin B3, is super important to overall human health. But mice, which are of course a common model organism in labs around the world, well, they're not a great model for how humans use niacin. So Morella Meyerfica, let's start there. Wild-type mice can get niacin in ways humans can't. Why is that? It's one of the things that I think a lot of researchers 
tend to forget. We want to find cures for diseases. We want to develop medications. And we cannot test it in humans, so we test it in mice. And as you said, mice are not a good model for niacin metabolism because while we are all mammalians and we have in general the same metabolic pathways in all our cells, mice use them a little differently than we do. So mice can use tryptophan, which is an essential amino acid, so we get it with our protein. We get it with our Thanksgiving dinners. For example, <laughs> yes, we do. So they can use that to make all the NAD they need in the body. Humans can make a tiny bit of the NAD using tryptophan, but this pathway is very inefficient in humans. So we need to eat enough vitamin B3 or niacin to make sure we can produce the NAD we really need. If we want to understand niacin's role in our bodies, we need an organism that processes it more like we do. That's what these Andy mice do. How did you create these transgenic mice? First, I have to give you a disclaimer. It's not me that created them on my own. It was a big team effort. We looked at this pathway many years ago and we thought, what's the difference between humans and mice? Because all the enzymes in those pathways are present in both species. So it's not that the pathways per se are completely different. It, it's just how we use it is slightly different. And so we had the hypothesis that there's one end that one of the enzymes in this pathway is a little more effective in humans. And to understand why this might be important is that one of the metabolites in this pathway has neurotoxic activities. So the body does not want to accumulate it because humans tend to live relatively long and we want our brain to be intact. But mice live a short time and so it doesn't matter if they develop these toxins. Yeah, I think that's at least the theory that we were working off. So you, you looked at the way that humans use this pathway, you looked at the way that mice use their pathway, and you essentially took the mouse model and you shut down one of the pathways that it uses to process the niacin. It's the other way around. We augmented it in a way that it's more effective in the humans. So we prevent the mice from using this metabolite to go to NAD and also to go through this toxic intermediate on the way from tryptophan to NAD. Uh, you, you gave them a bigger pipeway. Basically, yeah. We gave them a bigger pipeway to the way that leads to energy, not to NAD. And because of that, they can have tryptophan, but they need to also eat vitamin B3 to fulfill their NAD needs. And this is just what we have in humans. Now, one of the cool things about these Andy mice is that the changes in their relationship to niacin are inducible. You can turn them on or off, essentially, with a very common antibiotic. Why is that important uh, for you as a researcher? It's very important because whenever you design studies, you need control animals. One of the reasons these mice have such potential right now is because of a molecule that you've mentioned here today, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, which is commonly known as NAD. Mm -hmm. And NAD is a really hot research subject right now. Can you explain why? NAD has so many hats, it's hard to cover them all in even a long session. It's very central to most of the metabolic processes going on in the body. How we metabolize our glucose, most enzymes in this pathway need NAD. We need NAD to degrade fat, to, to synthesize fat. All those processes need NAD. At the same time, and this is where it's really cool, NAD also is a substrate for a group of enzymes that are epigenetic modulators. 
bottom line is both of those enzyme groups change how the body uses the genes in the body, which is what's nowadays known as epigenetics. So NAD is kind of this molecule that's allowing conversations between our metabolism and our epigenetic makeup. So now we've got these mice. What are you doing with them? The first study was basically just showing that it's true that our hypothesis has some merit that we can make the mice a little closer to what's going on in the human, that basically those mice need niacin in their diet. If they don't have niacin in their diet, their NAD levels drop. And we tested many tissues and it dropped significantly. Going forward, there are a lot of options of what we can do in terms of health, in terms of behavior. I want to find out how changing the niacin diet in those mice will change the information in sperm and change the offspring later on. I assume there have been a lot of other researchers who are interested in this as well. What have you heard from your colleagues? I have been contacted by a few researchers. Someone wants to use the mice to study um, tissue scarring, a very big obvious field that I hope the mouse will be very useful for is aging research. We know how we can fortify our food and how to prevent a niacin or NAD deficiency. But an interesting observation that was made some time ago is that aging humans tend to have a drop in NAD levels. So there is some connection between lowering NAD or having lower NAD and the negative health effect that we as as aging humans experience. I hope this is where this mouse will be really useful for most researchers in the future. That's Marilla Meyer-Fika, whose paper describing the creation of a transgenic mouse that is dependent on niacin in a way that is more similar to humans was recently published in the journal Cell Reports. Marilla, can you stick around to talk to our next guest at the end of the show? Sure, it's my pleasure. Next up, the entomological ecologist. Something that a half year of doing this show has taught us and our listeners, it's that we love talking about bees. And I hope that makes sense. We record this show in Utah, after all. This is the beehive state. And there are a lot of great researchers here who study the flying insects of the Anthophilidae clade. And that's in no small part because there are a lot of bees here. There are also a lot of national parks in Utah. And our next guest figures that presents a really unique opportunity to study bees. His latest paper in Pure J offers a look at the diversity of bees in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And Joseph Wilson, you found a lot of bees there, 660 of them. And among those were a whole lot of bees that had not previously been described. How many are we talking about? So out of the 660 species, about 50 of them are new to science, undescribed species. And we're sure that they're undescribed because they look different enough to say, when we look at them under the microscope, we can say, oh, this is something's unique about this, this bee. But in addition to those 50, there's another 150 that they're not unique enough to call them new species, but they also don't match any of the known species. So that's, that makes about 200 species out of the grand staircase that we're just not sure about. They need more research done on them. And these are what we call morpho species, right? That sounds actually like something out of a 1980s like afternoon cartoon. What, what's a morpho species? It's something that looks kind of like another species, but not quite enough to call it species A or whatever, whatever it looks like. Now, of all of these new species, maybe of all of these new morpho species, did you have a favorite? Uh, that's tricky because 660 species, how do you choose one? So I choose... Like choosing your children. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I like them all, right? 
Actually, I do like one group better than the others. So there's this group of small bees. They're some of the smallest bees in North America. And we found over 80 species of these. I call them fairy bees because you don't really notice them. They look like shadows almost flying around the bush because they're so small. But they're just so cool. They're, they have like green and yellow markings on their face. Some of them are as small as George Washington's nose on a quarter, two millimeters long. I just love those little fairy bees. You, you don't notice them, but they're just so neat. Now, two millimeters, that's really small. Is that approaching the lower limit of the size spectrum for bees? Uh, there are, there's one species that's a little bit smaller in South America, but definitely two millimeters is the smallest in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, does this make you excited? I'm kind of into superlative species. I'll give like a full disclosure here. I'm writing a book about superlative species. As a scientist, does it make you a little excited to think that if there's a two millimeter bee here in Utah, you might be able to find one just a little bit smaller and maybe contend for that record with those South American bees? You know, there's so much variation. I guess I haven't really thought about it. When you describe a new species, there's this whole process of naming them, which is maybe really easy if you just find one, but you guys found 49. So how do you go about coming up with enough names to to fill these new species? You know, largely I leave that up to my colleague. We've just been thinking about the diversity and the patterns because there's a lot of interesting patterns down in the Grand Staircase. I'm wondering about how you go about doing this. Do you just spend a lot of time hanging out in the park waiting for a flying insect to pass you by? So Olivia designed this study, and she did a really good job. So she designed this with several plots. Uh, These plots were 100 meters by 100 meters, and she had a standardized way to collect in these, these sites. And then we would visit each of these plots every two weeks. And we had enough sites across this just really big monument that we filled our time pretty well. So I just spent my summers hiking around and catching bees. Man, you poor guy. I know, it was rough. You collected a lot of bees, 40,000 specimens, is that right? Yeah, something like that. That's a lot of cataloging. Exactly. So this study actually ended, or the collecting ended in about 2003. So it's taken us a long time to get to this point. With 40,000 specimens, each one of those has to be uh, pinned and labeled and then we have to look at them under a microscope to identify them and, and then deal with the, the data, a lot of data in there, because each specimen is labeled with the location it was collected on, the time of day, the date, and even the flower. So we have all these data points to, to ask a lot of really interesting questions. You mentioned the flowers. The reason why there are so many bees there, well, one of the biggest reasons is because there are so many flowering plants in this particular national monument. Exactly. That's one of the reasons the Grand Staircase was established as a national monument. The Grand Staircase has about 87% of all the flowering plants known from Utah. So it's a really diverse area there. And then we have more than half of all of the bee species known from Utah in that same area. Now, when you're spending so much time in a place, uh, I know you're looking for bees, but you probably notice other things, too. Were there other scientific questions, other species of flowers or animals that you got interested in while you were there? So I I do love bees, but I also really like lizards and snakes. Uh, Another one of my favorite insects are velvet ants. They're a wingless wasp that is the toughest animal in the world. If I give my unbiased opinion. I'm going to go with tardigrades, but we can have that argument <laughs> yeah, later. Yeah, we can. But so I, I, I loved my summers down there because I got to experience some of the beautiful, most beautiful scenery in the world, but also just so many cool, interesting landscapes and animals and plants and just so much fun. When you find a lot of new species in one relatively small area, species that no one has previously described, what goes through your mind in relationship to how quickly we're losing bees? 
You know, it's a really good question. And the unfortunate answer is we just don't know enough about bees to make any good, solid scientific statements about that. There's a lot we hear in the media about bee declines uh, across the country, across the world, in fact. But the reality is we don't know much. Of these 660 species we found in the Grand Staircase, most of them we know very little about. From our study, we know what plants they go to. But we don't know if, if that's exclusive. Did they only go to that plant or did we just happen to only collect it on that plant? We don't know about the nesting biology for most of these species or the, the distribution of most of these species. The Grand Staircase was established as a natural laboratory with some of the wording that they used. And it really was set up to be this natural laboratory, a really big area to do studies like ours. But now that this natural laboratory is changing, last year the, the monument boundaries were reduced by about 50%. So it makes the continuation of these studies done in this natural laboratory, it makes them difficult. If you change your lab halfway through a study, uh, sometimes you can't answer the same kinds of questions. Yeah, that fundamentally impacts all of the science that's been done there before and which can be done next. Exactly. So what are the next steps in your research? Do you move on to other national parks? Do you double down in the areas that haven't been changed in the national park? You know, uh, a little bit of both. I think that there's so much we don't know about bees, especially in the western U.S. So we need to explore diversity across the region, but also revisit some of these areas that we have studied. So this Grand Staircase study was about 20 years ago now. It would be really interesting to go back and see how things have changed, or if they have changed. Um, those are the kinds of data we need to be able to make statements like bees are declining or bees are not declining. That's Joseph Wilson, who was a member of a team whose paper in a recent edition of the journal Peer J describes the 660 species of bees in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Joseph, there's someone I want you to meet. Can you stick around for a bit? Yeah, sure. Joseph, this is molecular geneticist Marella Meyer-Fika. And Marella, this is entomological ecologist Joseph Wilson. Nice to meet you, Good Joseph. Good to meet you, too. So, Marella, I'm wondering, as a geneticist, when you hear about previously undescribed species being identified, what must go through your mind? It's, to me, it's fascinating. Just the sheer number of species that you have found, and let alone that... 10% of them have not been described before. It's mind-boggling. I'm fascinated. <laughs> Wonderful research. Thanks. Your stuff is really cool, too. Genetically modified organisms is like science fiction to me, almost. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, I, you know, whenever I hear about bees, I'm probably very common in that, to me, the beehives with the queen bee and the worker bee pops to mind and then you hear it in the media all the time how they're declining the diseases and the parasites that the honeybees are suffering yeah. from do you think it's the same problem or similar problems in the wild bee population also or don't we know it uh, we don't know much but wild bees are really different than honeybees i often tell people mm -hmm. that honeybees are the black sheep of the bee world because they're just almost almost totally different than all other bees. For example, in the United States, we have 4,000 different species of bees. One of those makes honey, and that's the honey bee, which is from Europe. It's not from the United mm -hmm. States. And so all, all of the bees in Utah, all of the native bees to Utah, don't live in huge colonies. They don't have a, a queen and workers. Bumblebees have small colonies with queens and workers, but they don't make a big honey, honey storage area for the wintertime. Most of the bees are solitary, and most of them are ground nesting bees. So as a single female bee 
digs a hole in the ground and makes a nest. And so the, the parasite differences are largely because of some of those behavioral differences. When you live in a hive, a honeybee hive has 50,000 or more bees in that hive. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of interaction between those individuals and parasites can get transferred around. When you're a solitary bee and you don't interact with many other bees, you have different types of, of parasites, but often it's not a, a it doesn't transfer. If parasites really were to wipe out the honeybee population, and could the wild bee population jump in and rescue our food supply, or do we still have to worry about them also declining because pesticides probably are not selective for honeybees? They are probably killing all insects. Yeah, there's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a complicated question. So pesticides are bad for insects in general. But that being said, these wild bees are excellent pollinators. For example, um, some studies show in orchards, two mason bees, these wild solitary bees, two mason bees can do the same amount of pollination as 100 honeybees. Wow. So in some cases, these wild bees are, are way better pollinators. It's a mixed bag. The wild bees can and they do a lot of the pollination in our gardens. But because of our habitat modification and our large-scale agriculture, we've kind of eliminated their ability to pollinate some of those um, big massive crops. If we could make some alterations to our agricultural system, the wild bees could pick up the slack, um, probably. Yeah. But we've mechanized it so much that sure. it doesn't work. Can I ask you about your research a little oh, bit? Oh, sure. So I was wondering, are mice unique among mammals in their metabolic pathway, or are humans unique among mammals in their ability to use niacin? Oh, that's a very good question. There have been some studies using rats and you can get rats a little bit niacin deficient if you keep them on a very uh, special diet without mm. niacin and with lots of gelatin or tryptophan, poor protein. But this is just a very temporary effect. And then they seem to counter-regulate and fulfill their NAD needs with this poor diet as well. So oh, there are variations in between the species. Mice were just the go-to model because that's where most biomedical research happens. Yeah. There are other species that very much need niacin in their diet like humans. I think dogs, if mm. my memory serves me right, would be in theory good models. But we don't want to yeah. have huge dog colonies to, to do this extensive biomedical studies. That makes sense. I was also wondering, this is kind of a, a weird, different kind of question. Is this something you have to patent? Your, your, your new mouse, you have to patent that? So when people use it in their research, they have to go through, through you? Well, the mouse is not patented. I can tell you that. I think nowadays you cannot easily patent a mouse anymore. Yeah, it kind but of seems in, like a weird thing. <laughs> I know there were times where people either did it or tried to do it, but I think nowadays you cannot just hmm. patent a mouse. But, you know, I'm not the patent yeah. lawyer here, so don't quote me on that. I don't know anything that. about it either. I was just wondering. But, um, but we haven't even tried patterning the mouse mm. because it was a collaboration between so many institutes and even the mouse was produced with help from different institutes. I just thought it would be a logistical nightmare. I hope yeah. the dean is not going to kill me for <laughs> not patterning the mouse or at least trying to pattern the well, mouse. Well, it seems like it, to, it would move the science forward more quickly when it's more easily available. Th that's, that's my take on it. Honestly, I am in science because I like studying things. I like discovering new things. I'm not in it for the money. 
Let me turn back to this question of speciation. Uh, Joseph, you were talking about using morphological characteristics to determine where a bee belongs on uh, the tree of life. But I was wondering, there's got to be genetic answers to this question, too, of speciation. Because in a lot of times, I mean, evolution can drive two species to look the same, act the same, do the same sorts of things. But genetically, they may be quite a bit different. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of my velvet ant research is. Um, it's a big mimicry complex. And so different velvet ants that are dangerous have evolved to look just like each other so they can train predators to avoid them. And so we'll have two very distantly related species that look just the same. Marilla, is there, mm-hmm. are there lessons that we can learn from the genomes of newly discovered insects? I mean, all of these are potential new model organisms, right? Oh, yes. There are so many mo- model organisms out there, usually coming from the classic genetics or at least the classic biomedical research area. We tend to focus on human, human cells, and mice. But actually, I think our thinking has to change a little bit in that model organisms might have benefits or advantages depending on what the question is. A great model for heart diseases are actually pigs because they have pretty similar body size than humans, so they make a way better model than mice. It's just we're a little focused on certain model organisms because we know how to manipulate them. But I think we should really look at many more species and broaden our view a little bit in terms of we cannot only study where we ha- what we have the tools for, we should study what will eventually give us the answers. And you're really interested in epigenetics. And if there's a great organism that really undergoes a lot of different expression and that changes the organism in some really substantial ways, it's bees. I know. I know. I'm fascinated by the fact that they go through this complete metamorphosis. Though, Can you imagine those cells have the same DNA start to finish and they can just completely change everything? And I don't know if they are studied to a degree that they deserve. So I think it would be very cool to find out about more models and like like bees. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe these fairy bees are, are the next big model organism. No, that'd be awesome. Hopefully the bees can lead the way. Unfortunately, we are about out of time. Marilla Meyerfika, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And Joseph Wilson, thank you. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. You can download this and other episodes of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. We have production help today by Tom Williams. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussauds. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.